Ladies and gentlemen, we need to talk about science probably more than ever before because a lot of people are denying the reality of it. And that also will lead into a discussion on glaring contradictions in the Bible. Are they there? And when we find them, what do we do? We're going to address one of them. It's really clear. It's really obvious. And we're going to show you how those contradictions are actually showing us some pretty incredible truth from the mouth of God. I look forward to this tonight. I hope you do too. Welcome to your favorite night of the week. It's The Deep End on Tim Hatch Live. I am beloved. The men they call David, the son of a Jesse, the John that slay it, the heart full of king, three stones in a sling. I'm dancing my clothes off to the sound of the beat. Ah, welcome to the deep end with Tim Hatch. Ladies and gentlemen, season four, episode 31, 730 Tuesday night. You are here. I am here. And I am so glad that we have this time together. And uh, as usual, I would appreciate if you would subscribe at Tim Hatch Live on YouTube, youtube.com slash Tim Hatch Live. That's right. Subscribe. You got to click that subscription bell. You got to click that like button. You got to click the notification thing so that you know when we are live on your smartphone. You'll always know if you just click that little bell. And we'll let you know. Uh, so Tim Hatch Live is also the location for all of our social media accounts. That is Twitter. Instagram, Facebook, Twitch, and YouTube. And I had a special time with you guys on Thursday last week. I hope you did too with 10 questions with Tim. This was last Tuesday, last Thursday, sorry. And it was such a wonderful time. And I hope that you join us for our third installment of this new segment on the channel, 10 Questions with Tim. It's on July 22nd. And you can submit your questions at ask at timhatchlive.com or in the comments below. And if you want to remain anonymous, don't put it in the comments below. Just email me, and I'd be glad to answer your questions. Uh, just for your information, we already have eight questions submitted, so there's only two spots left. Send your questions in as soon as possible. Okay, I got a lot to talk about, and I don't want to waste any more time, so let's head into it. It's Deep End News. Deep End News. News and views that don't make us news. A while back, I shared information about Dr. John Money, Dr. quote unquote, John Money, the infamous doctor from Johns Hopkins University in the 1970s who practiced bizarre, bizarre sorry, sexual experiments on twin boys, Bruce and Brian Reamer. Bruce, who was raised as a girl because of a botched circumcision and then detransitioned back later to a man in li later in life. Uh, these two boys had their lives destroyed by Dr. John Money. This was two episodes ago. Go back and watch it after you watch this episode. But anyway, this guy, Dr. John, Dr. John Money codified today's concept of gender as being divorced from one's genetic or biological sex. Now, he's done untold damage through this philosophy, and I want to bring him up for today's news segment one more time because he didn't just divorce gender from sexual biology. Well, he also did a lot more harm than we understand. I mean, the just as a quick reminder, he had he had these boys, Bruce and Brian Reamer, practice sexual uh, practices on each other, explore each other's genitals. He did this as he photographed them. He had them do this in front of as many as six colleagues at one time. Uh, he verbally abused them. Anyway, both boys ended up dead. Bruce killed himself. Brian died of a drug overdose from antidepressants. Summing it up, this guy was the founder of transsexualism in our world. Yeah, yeah, that's where it comes from, this guy, okay? Don't let anybody tell you any different. Uh, whenever you see fruit of something, there's always a root. Here's the root, and today's confusion amongst our teens and amongst our kids 
is the fruit. But I wish that that was the only contribution that this jerk made to our society. Remember I said two weeks ago that this guy was also an avid supporter of pedophilia as a sexual orientation. Quoted in the Padika, a Dutch journal of pedophilia, which I didn't even know there was such things as journals of pedophilia, but evidently in Holland there is. He said, quote, if I were to see the case of a boy 10 or 12 who's intensely attracted toward a man in his 20s or 30s, if the relationship is totally mutual and the bonding is genuinely totally mutual, then I would not call it pathological in any way. This is Dr. Dr. John Money of Johns Hopkins University. Incidentally, uh, no Johns Hopkins uh, University Hospital will practice uh, gender reassignment surgeries. They learned their lesson. They're way ahead of the curve. They knew that this is all a facade. It is all ridiculous. Anyway, he's the root of this confusing mess that is spoiling our culture and ruining our children. We are living in a hypersexualized mess, ladies and gentlemen, a hypersexualized mess that is destroying lives. I bring that up because this week at our church, I brought up the fact that there is a current debate among the sexual liberationists of our age, particularly in the avenue of human psychiatry, as to whether sexual as, as to whether pedophilia can be deemed or classified a sexual orientation. There is a current debate about this. There is a current debate about pedophilia being assigned the term sexual orientation. And there's a lot of pushback on it being defined as a sexual orientation. There's also people pushing for it to be defined as sexual orientation. And the fact that there's a debate about this is insane. Someone who touches kids deserves death, friends. Someone who touches kids sexually deserves death. I get that from the words of Jesus when he says, if you cause one of these little ones of mine to suffer or to sin, it'd be better if you had a millstone tied around your neck and you're thrown into the sea. Jesus said, suffer not the little children, let them come to me. Don't hinder them from coming to the truth. You heard a minor. I think you should be dead. I think that should be the rule. I think that should be the law. But anyway, I want to put something up on the screen that I mentioned this past Sunday at church. Uh, this is from the Journal of the American Academy of Psychiatry and the Law. And the title of the article here in the journal is, quote, The Pedophilia and Orientation Debate and Its Implications for Forensic Psychiatry. Ladies and gentlemen, the words pedophilia, orientation, debate should not exist in a <laughs> logical sentence. It just shouldn't. But, but here's the problem, because this article, uh, which is now being given to social workers in Massachusetts to study the concept of sexual attraction to prepubescent children as an orientation, is asking the question, can we, can we change the, that, that orientation? Can we change someone who feels sexually aroused by children? Uh, that's, the, that's the question, because this is a problem, right? And, and even the proponents, okay? of changing them, they're facing pushback because what have we heard for so many years from the LGBT movement and their allies that sexual orientation is fixed, immutable, and part of who we are. We were what, Lady Gaga? So now we have a glaring conflict, don't we? We have a glaring conflict, and this article acknowledges it. Here's the glaring conflict. If sexual orientation is fixed, from birth and unchangeable. What do we do with pedophiles who we want to change? And that's the question in this article. And that's why <laughs> that's why there's a debate because you can't have both ways, can you? You can't say that the person is, you know, attracted to minors because that's that's just, you know, that's his that's how he is. And and then say, but we need to change him if you've been telling people that you're not allowed to practice conversion therapy for gays and lesbians. 
You, you can't have it both ways. So here's the answer that this article comes up with. The answer is, let's just change the name. Let's create a new name. It's called paraphilia. And rather than call it an orientation, we'll call it paraphilia. And that way it can be changed. Why? What's the difference? Well, we change the name. That's what the difference is. That's the difference between an orientation and, para, and pedophilia. Because a pedophilia is paraphilia and orientation is orientation. Well, where's the science for that? There's no science. It's just our definition. Now they're just throwing words against the wall. Because after all, we don't want to mess with what we fought so hard to convince the culture of, which is that your orientation sexually is immutable. Now, 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 when we make it a um, matter of it being a paraphilia, now we can address uh, the issues. Now we can address the problems with uh, pedophiles. Oh, and by the way, in the article too, they say no more calling them pedophiles. Call them persons who have pedophilia. <laughs> this is so insane because now we're going to call what? Murderers who have uh, hateful rage? Instead of calling them murderers, we're going to call them people with hateful rage. <laughs> we're going to call thieves people with uh, kleptomaniac tendencies. Like, why, why can't we just address people for what they are? Why do we have to be so careful, especially people who hurt children? Why do we even have to debate this? Anyway, a couple of highlights from the article, a couple of quotes that I want to show you. Uh, the, 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 this is from the article itself. Quote, the main question to be addressed here is whether or not pedophilia is an orientation. In 2013, and notice this, in 2013, the American Psychiatric Association issued a statement that the DSM-5 text that referred to pedophilia as an orientation was a text-based error. Nevertheless, some sexologists, nevertheless, some sexologists have continued to argue that pedophilia is in fact a sexual orientation. And that is a problem because if it's a sexual orientation, then when, well, then we can't change it because we, again, we fought for that. So the article goes on and says, uh, the broad definition of orientation proposed in this article has the potential to support a paradigm that conceptualizes pedophilia as an orientation which is as undeserving of treatment as homosexuality. In other words, if you align pedophiles with homosexuals, then you cross that dangerous line of saying, well, we can't change pedophiles because we can't change homosexuals. And this is a problem. This is a double standard. And so, so now they've come up with paraphilia as a definition, uh, a term, to apply only to pedophiles so that pedophiles can be changed. And then when pedophiles are changed, then they suddenly find out that they don't actually have to change their sexual orientation as attracted to the same sex, but they just, they just have to turn that sexual orientation from children to adults. <laughs> Here's what it says. Because they equate pedophilia with orientations, commentators who claim that pedophilia is an untreatable condition often resort to arguments more applicable to homosexuality. That's a problem. Patients often subscribe to the same confusion of concepts. It is common for a man with pedophilia pedophilia. Again, there's, there's a term. He's not a pedophile now. He's a man with pedophilia who has been convicted of sex with boys. By the way, you're, you're no longer a man with pedophilia. If you've been convicted of sex with boys, you are anathema to human civilization. I'm sorry. That's disgusting. And you should be dead. But anyway, um, it is common for a man with pedophilia who has been convicted of sex with boys to think that his treatment will involve changing his orientation. Most are relieved and surprised when they learn that the treatment of pedophiles involves changing their sexual interests from children to adults, male or female, with no expectation of changing their orientation. When they hear this, some cry. Do you understand what's happening here? They're trying to make it very comfortable for men who want to have sex with boys to not feel so bad about it and just adjust their orientation from children to adulthood. And the way that we can justify doing that is by saying that is no longer an orientation is a paraphilia. We just come up with the term. We just come up with the term. <laughs> <laughs> this is science. This is modern day science, changing terms to make sure that we can do what we want so that we can be culturally acceptable and continue our agenda upon the human civilization. By the way, the article goes on. There's a glaring, another, another glaring hole of, this, of the scientific argument about the immutability of sexual orientation. Here's the quote. Listen, quote, given the orientation... Given, I'm sorry, given that orientation is defined by gender or affection, there is no reason to pathologize 
any of many possible variations of orientation, and the APA was correct, though slow to remove homosexuality from the DSM. Concerning mutability, there is evidence. Concerning mutability, that's changeability. Concerning immutability, there is evidence that the orientation of women is more changeable than the orientation of men. They're talking about homosexuality and lesbianism here. Uh-oh. That, that's a problem. I, I thought that it was fixed and mutable, but evidently, according to their studies now with homosexuals and lesbians, there is some measure of mutability. That is changeability in the orientation of these people. So you're telling me there's a chance. This is modern day science exposing that is very little science involved in modern day science. And ladies and gentlemen, be aware that this is a conversation. I'm not saying that people are promoting pedophilia in public schools. That's not what I'm saying. I am saying that they are talking about it. They are debating whether it's an orientation or not and how changeable it is. And that's a problem because this was going on five, four, six decades ago about homosexuality, homosexuality and lesbianism. It was going on about three decades ago about transgenderism. And pretty soon it's going to be the, the case where pedophilia is no longer debatable. It's just inherent in who we are. And some people are just born that way and we have to accept it because they're changing it. I mean, you understand? It's getting ridiculous. What do you do as a parent? Get your kids away from any school offering to indoctrinate them into these sex ed classes that they don't need. I heard this week that, that, that children as young as 10 are getting condoms for free from the public school systems in Chicago. 10-year-olds. We wonder why our kids are filled with anxiety when you're loading them up with sex ed at 10. Like when I was 10, I didn't want to have uh, sex, okay? I wanted to spill blood on my mom's carpet. That's what I wanted to do when I was 10. I wanted to play with rocks. I wanted to throw things. I wanted to, you know, climb trees. If I ever went to school when I was 10, I was taught sex ed and given a condom for free from my educator, I I'd suffer anxiety. We wonder why our kids are anxious and depressed. This is why. Because we were loading them up with terms and ideals that they aren't ready for. They aren't mentally or emotionally ready for. And it's a problem. Get your kids away from these classes. Call the school if you're a parent who has a kid in the public school system and tell them you want advanced notice of when such discussions take place around sexuality and keep your kid out that day and go to the park. Seriously, it's getting that ridiculous and you as a parent should fight for the right of information as to what your child's school is teaching your children. More than ever before, we need to fight for the sanctity and the senility of our children. The fact that these things are debated, the fact that these new words have to be propagated to fit the agenda is scary, and you need to be aware. Now on to more anti-scientific science. Oh, before we get there, actually, you'll notice that I've changed the shelf of civility because I decided it's <laughs> more appropriate now that we just change it to the shelf of science with a little Doogie Howser MD uh, theme song, if you will. It's now the shelf of science. And I just made it that way because I figure if science can be whatever anybody wants, then I can make science what I wanted here on the deep end. Okay? <laughs> so. On to more anti-scientific science. Remember, do you guys remember the phrase, my body, my choice? Do you remember that phrase? Who came up with that phrase? Oh yeah, pro-abortion activists. My body, my choice is my right because my body to destroy the body inside my body with forceps uh, and a doctor who will dismember my unborn child piece by piece and then throw him in a piece of, in, a, in a garbage can. Mm. My body, my choice. What, whatever happened to that glorious statement? <laughs> Turns out it doesn't mean that for all things. Now, my body, my choice is anathema to the same people who used to, pro who used to promote it for the dismemberment of unborn children. Because why? Because you, my friend, need to get the vaccine. It's no longer your body, your choice. 
I'm referring to the former president of Planned Parenthood who said it's time for the, the country to make it hard to live for people who hold out on the vaccine. I kid you not. I bring you to Leanna Wen, the former Planned Parenthood president. Here's what she said. Watch this. And what we really need to do at this point is to make vaccination the easy choice. It needs to be hard for people to remain unvaccinated. Right now, it's kind of the opposite. It's fine. I mean, it's easy if you're unvaccinated. You can do everything you want to do anyway. But at some point, these mandates by workplaces, by schools, I think it will be important to say, hey, you can opt out. But if you want to opt out, you have to sign these forms. You have to get twice weekly testing. Basically, we need to make getting vaccinated the easy choice. That is what it's going to take for us to actually end the pandemic. Are you kidding me? Like you, you're going to make it hard for people. This, this is the agenda for the My Body, My Choice people. Now we're going to make it hard for you to say My Body, My Choice when it comes to jabbing you with a relatively new vaccine that has not got full FDA approval yet. <laughs> Ugh, this is the insanity of our age. And they want to make it hard, hard for you to live without the vaccine. How are they going to do that? You, you, you see, ladies and gentlemen, what I have said before on this show, and I want to say it again, is that COVID-19 has been a tool by which the government has been training us to receive the end time age, the end time one world government that the Bible talks about, wherein liberty is restricted and citizens start to turn on each other. We have been we have been conditioned to receive this. Just look at this picture, you know, it, I, just for the sake of entertainment for for a second this picture a, a woman pointing the temperature gun at a guy's forehead you know remember the bible says that you're going to get the mark of the beast on your forehead and, and and we've already been conditioned we've already been conditioned to receive the 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 person checking our forehead do you got the mark do you got the mark i mean this is what's going on and now they want to make it hard for you to get uh, what l- groceries or go to school or go on vacation without the without the vaccine so what does that what does that remind you of it reminds me of revelation 13 16 revelation 13 16 about the mark of the beast it also caused all both small and great both rich and poor both free and slave to be marked on the right hand or on the forehead so that no one can buy or sell i.e make it harder for them to do commerce until he has the mark that is the name of the beast and the number of his name no buying or selling making life hard unless you receive the mark. And, and and now President Biden is going to have uh, his agents, I guess, come door to door and tell us about how great the vaccine is. Seriously, this is this is where we are as a country right now. This is where we are going. I bring you to his press agent, Jen Psaki, who said the following this week. President will outline five areas his team is focused on to get more Americans vaccinated. One, uh, targeted community-by-community door-to-door outreach to get remaining Americans vaccinated by ensuring they have the information they need. You're going to have government agents come to my door and tell me how safe your brand-new vaccine is? (sighs) Meanwhile, on CNN, Dr. Fauci, Dr. Fake Me Out, as I like to call him here on the on the deep end, said, I literally, I kid you not, within seconds of each other, he said the following quote. The first quote is, I don't think there should be, uh, I'm sorry, I think there should be more vaccine mandates. That's the government telling you to get vaccinated or whatever, the school telling you to get vaccinated or the industry telling you to get vaccinated or the, or the business telling you to get vaccinated. I think there should be more mandates. And then seconds later, he said, but people need to stop feeling like they're being forced to do something. 
How can you not? Watch this. Uh, you know, it was just so funny. I had to do, I had to break out my video editing skills today. <laughs> and I put a little montage together just to show you how crazy this is. Some of you get so mad when I pick on Fauci, but it's because he double talks all the time and you don't pay attention close enough to see it. I do. And I put it together so you can see it clearly now. Ready? Watch. But I do believe at the local level, Jake, there should be more mandates. There really should be. We're talking about life and death situation. So I am in favor of that. We've got to put aside this ideological difference or differences thinking that somebody's forcing you to do something. But I do believe at the local level, Jake, there should be more mandates. There should be more mandates. Mandate, 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 ma 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 mandates. We've got to put aside this ideological difference or differences thinking that somebody's forcing you to do something. <laughs> I'm in danger. So I am in favor of that. Yeah, that's Dr. Fauci speaking out of both sides of his mouth within seconds of each other. You got to pay attention, friends, because this is what's happening now with science. This is what's happening with the COVID-19 pandemic. And I, as a pastor, I have a pastoral concern. You got to see it. You got to see it. Because your freedom is at stake, your liberty is at stake, and we know that Jesus talked about this. He talked about this concerning the end times. Revelation talks about it ad nauseum, and we are being conditioned to embrace government overreach into our lives. Now, I don't know if we're living in the exact end times. It's starting to feel that way to me. But anyway, some interesting facts about the, uh, the COVID vaccine, some interesting facts, and I just want to put them up on the screen, and again... Make sure that you subscribe to us on Rumble when we get there, because I don't know how much longer we're going to be able to stay on YouTube. Check this out. 165 million Americans on average get the flu shot every year. There were 85 reported deaths from the flu shot in 2000, 2017, 119 deaths in 2018, and 203 deaths in 2019. Now, this is out of 165 million Americans getting the flu shot. Those numbers aren't too high, right? 85, 119 and 203 deaths, respectively, in the last three years. For the COVID-19 shot, 95 million and 100 million, somewhere around there, Americans have received their COVID-19 shots, and there were 3,544 reported deaths following COVID vaccination, about 30 a day. Uh, VARS, or VARS, Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System, had also received 12,600 reports of serious adverse effects from the COVID vaccine. In total, 118,902 adverse effects reports had been filed. The European Union reports 7,766 deaths after vaccination. Um, this is scary, my friends. Another little tidbit. An April 2021 report in the New England Journal of Medicine said that miscarriage was the most common condition reported after COVID vaccine uh, being received. And my wife has a friend who works in ultrasounds. And this friend told my wife that she has seen an uptick, a severe uptick in um, miscarriages, uh, even up to the 24th or 30th month, which are usually those are the months where it's low chances of a miscarriage. And now they're happening with great regularity, even greater regularity after these vaccines came out. Now, just for historical camp, uh, comparison, in 1976, okay, this is interesting, the pandemic swine flu mass vaccination campaign was canceled after 53 people died. 45 million people received vaccinations. 53 people died out of 45 million. Guess what they did in seven, 1976? They canceled the vaccination procedures. Now health authorities are shrugging off more than 3,500 deaths 
after COVID-19 vaccination as either coincidental or inconsequential. And the president just told you that he's going to go door to door to make sure that you know how safe it is. Oh, yeah, by the way, he also wants you to report your neighbors who you think might be radicals. Yeah, the president of the United States is asking Americans to rat each other out if they don't agree with the direction of the society. (laughs) For four years, we were told that Donald Trump was a fascist. I guess we just traded one fascist for another fascist. But let's put all these details together, shall we? Let's put all these details together. They want to make it difficult for people who refuse the vaccine. They expect you to comply with random health inspections, such as pointing thermometers at your forehead. They're going to come to your door and get you to comply with their ideals about vaccinations and health according to their science. And if you see any dissenters, report them. Holy smokes. I can't believe what I'm seeing. I'm seeing scripture come to pass in my lifetime. Jesus said these things would take place, friend. Remember Matthew 24? Matthew 24, he said, many will turn away from me. This is verse 10. And betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Sin will be rampant everywhere. And the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. So the question might be for you, what are we going to do as Christians in these days? Here's what we're going to do. We're going to endure. We're going to press on in faith. We're going to hold on to Jesus. We're not going to give up. Do you know why we're not going to give up? Because of a wonderful promise that Jesus made concerning all these crazy events that we're seeing transpire in our day and age. Luke chapter 21, verse 28. When, they, when these things begin to take place, straighten up, raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. And that just fires me up. Get some! <laughs> These are the days in which we live, ladies and gentlemen. We are seeing scripture come to pass. No, I'm not saying with absolute certainty that these, in fact, are the last days. I am saying with absolute certainty that now I can totally understand how this one world government will be able to come to power and force people to receive a mark on their on their person in order to buy and sell and why and how easily people will turn on each other, even within the church, when they see their fellow members or quote unquote brothers and sisters or neighbors or family members not complying with governmental mandates. Ladies and gentlemen, for years I was raising the church to believe that revelation was true, but I always had this conflict in my head. How could it be true? It's going to seem so far-fetched that that could ever happen to American society or the world at large. And here we are, and it's happening. And the same themes, albeit very subtly and in a small way, are coming out to the light, and no one is saying a thing. That's why we do this show the, the deep end. And that's the news. And I hope you enjoyed it. And now it's time to get to the life of David. Today, discussing a glaring contradiction in scripture. The title of this talk is Sin, Judgment, and the Foundation of God's House, and we are in 2 Samuel chapter 24. 2 Samuel chapter 24, Sin, Judgment, and the Foundation of God's House. Today we're going to study another one of David's grievous sins. Uh, David is not perfect, ladies and gentlemen, and what I love about our Bible is that it shows that our heroes 
are heroes with warts. You know what's happening in America right now? And if you're listening to this or watching this later on, maybe two or three years from now, well, what's happening right now in 2020 and 2021 is that we're in this cycle, this phase of purging our our historical figures from our past. We, not we, but many in our culture want to reject anyone in our nation's founding or history who ever did anything wrong at any moment according to our values today. C.S. Lewis called this chronological snobbery, looking back on people in the past with this <laughs> elitist mindset, how stupid of them to have done that. They, didn't they know better? Well, they lived within the context of their age, and so do you, and so do we. And someday our forebearers are going to say the same thing about us 100 years from now. How did they live like that? How could they have thought those things, right? Chronolo- chronological snobbery. Anyway, our country wants to reject the contributions of Abraham, uh, not Abraham Lincoln, Thomas Jefferson. So far, not Abraham Lincoln, but Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, Noah Webster, you know, the founders of our country, the greatest country in the world. They want to reject them, cancel them. Why? Because they own slaves or they had a different view on something. They didn't think that a man was a woman. You know, something crazy like that. And this is problematic for a few reasons. Number one, no one is perfect. If we're going to cancel everyone who is imperfect, guess what? Only Jesus is left. Well, wait a second. That's actually a good thing. (laughs) But number two, even the Bible extols imperfect men. Even the Bible does. David, the murdering adulterer, is in the hall of faith, is in the hall of fame of faith in Hebrews 11. And we sing his psalms to this day in spite of his many, many failures. And number three, the problem with the cancel culture, canceling everybody who did anything wrong in history because we want to upend our culture as we know it, there's a bit of self-righteousness to that, isn't there? There's a bit of assuming that you know what's righteous and what's unrighteous right now with your limited knowledge and limited expertise. And this undermines the gospel because in order to be saved, you must confess that you are nasty. Yeah. Yeah, and if you don't confess that you are nasty, you got no hope of getting saved. I give you a few recent examples, hilarious examples of being of people not being touched with history in our country. On the screen is a statue of Matthias Baldwin in Philadelphia, and is being defaced by some Gen Z social justice warrior. Of course, it's a white woman, and she is spray painting, and I guess she's about to lasso <laughs> lasso his head or whatever, and he's been you know, uh, he's received the requisite judgment of today's social justice warriors for being an evil founder of this country. It's kind of ironic, though. It's kind of ironic since Matthias Baldwin was an abolitionist. Back in the 1800s, he helped fund and build a school for black children when black children weren't allowed to go to school. He also paid the teacher salaries for years when the school had no money. He fought for black voting rights for 30 years before slavery ended. And when he died, he left 10% of his wealth to the Civil War cause for the northern states. (laughs) But, you know, facts don't matter when you're young and convinced that your country is rotten to the core. Another example is Nicole Hannah-Jones, the Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist who came up with the despicable 1619 Project, which reframes America's history as white supremacy seeking only to establish into law slavery. She declined an offer from, for tenure at the University of North Carolina because her belief was that there was inherent racism within the school. And instead, she accepted a faculty position at Harvard University. She was denied tenure the first year of her eligibility, as many professors are. But she claimed that it was because of her race and gender. Well, when they finally offered her tenure, she said no thanks. And she left the school and she got a job with Howard University, a historical 
historic black college and university member. Well, anyway, it's kind of ironic since her choice of Howard University was founded by a guy named Oliver O. Howard, a white Republican and a general in the Union Army who fought to end slavery. He also served Howard University as president from 1867 to 1873 and was one of the leaders of the Freedmen's Bureau, which helped educate freed slaves during Reconstruction. So she's going to a school that was started by a guy who was white, who fought for the end of slavery and the education of the former enslaved. And she's also the person who believes that the foundations of our country were not 1776, they were 1619 to codify into law the slave trade. <laughs> this is what happens when you are disconnected from historical facts, friends. This is what happens when you tend to look through the lens of history with your self-righteousness, believing that you have got it all under control and you know what's right and wrong and shame on those people in the past who didn't. Well, thankfully, the Bible doesn't act like that. David failed, and we see his failures clearly portrayed on the pages of Scripture. David failed in regards to Uriah the Hittite and Bathsheba, his wife. David failed in regards to parenting his kids. In fact, I didn't even mention a passage in Chronicles that talks about the fact that he never once, or sorry, 1 Kings, he never once corrected his son Adonijah. So David never improved as a parent later in life. Never. He was a failure as a parent. And now we come to his third and final blunder in the pages of Holy Scripture. We're in 2 Samuel chapter 24, and we're talking about the census. The census. So we have this account in two places in Holy Scripture. It's recorded in Chronicles. It's also recorded here in 2 Samuel. We'll get to, we'll get to why, by the way, it's, only, uh, it's the only failure of David recorded in Chronicles. We'll get to why in just a moment about that. But these three failures are recorded, and this one failure, the census is recorded in both uh, harmonied uh, accounts, uh, the first and second Samuel, first and second Chronicles accounts of David's life. The census goes like this. Let's get into the text, shall we? 2 Samuel 24, verse 1. And again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go, number Israel and Judah. Now look, now, now look at this. This is a sin that David commits. He's going to number the people. And we're going to talk about why it's a sin in a moment. 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 1 says that it was the anger of the Lord that, kindled, that was kindled against Israel, and then he incited David against them to, to, to number them. The parallel passage from Chronicles, interesting verse here. 1 Chronicles 21, verse 1 says it like this. Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. Whoa, contradiction? Is the Lord Satan? Is that what this is? Have we finally you know, found the magic verse to show us that we don't have to trust the Bible? We get to do what we want? Woohoo! <laughs> no. First off, the books of the book First Chronicles was written about a um, hundred or so years after. No, 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 longer than that, I think. No, no, about that. After Second Samuel, they were very well aware of what Second Samuel twenty-four verse one said, and for them to just blatantly contradict Scripture would have made them morons. No, no, no. We're not seeing a glaring contradiction in Scripture. We're actually seeing important conclusions in Scripture. Here's what that conclusion is. Are you ready for it? God is in charge of Satan too. Yes, God is in charge of Satan too. Now, each book that reports this census has a purpose. Second Samuel tells us of God's intentions against David and against Israel for their sin, right? That's what it said. It said the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he incited David. And he's going to, he's going to use this event to judge both Israel and David for their sin. 
Chronicles tells us the means by which God acted in this manner. And the means by which God acted in this manner was by using Satan. Now, ladies and gentlemen, this might come as a shock to you, but it's a very important theological truth. God and Satan are not Batman and Joker, okay? They, they are not arch nemeses, okay? God is in charge of everything. He has no equal. Satan is not on the same par as God. He is a created being. He's limited in his knowledge and understanding. He cannot be everywhere at once, okay? And he is often used as a tool for God to accomplish his purposes. Case in point, the cross itself was the tool of death on the Son of God to bring about the redemption of the sons of God and daughters of God, you and I. And it was all brought about through the incredibly evil acts of crucifying Jesus. But God often uses Satan to trouble or test his people. In the book of Kings, God asks his counsel, who will instigate Ahaz, King Ahaz, to sin against me? And, and one of them says, I'll go and be a lying spirit in the, in, the, uh, in the mouth of his prophets. And God says, yeah, that'll work. Go. In Job, Satan seeks and asks permission from God to attack Job, and God allows it. Even in the Gospels, Jesus tells Peter what? What does Jesus tell Peter? Satan has sought to sift you as wheat, Peter, but I prayed for you. And you're going to recover. In other words, Satan has gone to the Father and asked if he can sift you, if he can tempt you. He's going to, God allowed it. And uh, I want you to know I'm already praying for you and it's all going to be good. And then in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul talks about a messenger of Satan, a thorn in the flesh that was sent to him to keep him humble because he had had a vision of the third heaven. So God constantly does this. He uses Satan. He uses demonic messengers to, for his purpose, to shape his people, to strengthen his people, to build his people, and sometimes to correct his people. And what we're seeing here is in complete agreement with the rest of biblical theology regarding the person of Satan and demonic activity. God's in charge, not Satan. They are not equals. They are not adversaries. They are not Superman and Lex Luthor, okay? The question, though, must be asked this. What was the sin of David? What was the sin of Israel that made the Lord do this? That, 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 that's the more important question. See, the, the, the sin of Israel could be real simple, we can conclude that real simply. It's the two rebellions that they have just uh, acted out in against the Lord's anointed David. There's been two rebellions, the rebellion of Absalom and all Israel followed Absalom and then the rebellion of Sheba and all Israel followed Sheba. Back-to-back rebellions against the Lord's anointed. David, for better or for worse, was the Lord's anointed king. And this carries huge ramifications for our present context. If God judged Israel for rebelling against his chosen king in the ancient world, don't you realize that God would judge people today for rebelling against his chosen king Jesus? You see, we're living in a world that is in living we're living in a world that is in that is living in constant rebellion against Jesus. And perhaps we've seen the rise of all this demonic activity, all this confusion in our in our culture in our system of self-governance, all this oppression upon our minds, especially upon our youth with regards to depression and anxiety. Maybe this is the Lord judging us, judging our culture, judging our context, because we have radically rebelled against him and rejected his word. It's no coincidence, ladies and gentlemen, that the least biblically-minded generation in a century, i.e. Gen Z in this country, is also the most anxious generation in a century, the most mentally ill generation in a century. The further away you get from God, the further away you get from truth, and the further away you get from foundations that establish your life. The sin of Israel was rebellion. They rebelled against David twice in a row. The sin of David may have in fact been pride. 
In context, 2 Samuel tells us that David has just experienced a rapid succession of victories against the Philistines and the, and the nations around him. He's also amassed a group of 30 men, they call David's mighty men, that are heroic in their exploits. So David is like, uh, he's like Iron Man in the Marvel Universe. Like he's the head <laughs> of all of these great men in the ancient world. And so he's won a bunch of battles. He's got this huge, you know, arsenal of mighty, valiant men. And then he's got an enormous army, as we're going to see as a result of the census. He's got a, a, an enormous army. So maybe he's counting the people because he wants to see just how successful am I? Guess what that is? That's pride. And God would judge pride and God will correct his people when they fall into pride. Anyway, going on, let's take a look at how it unpacks. Verse two. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who is with him, go through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and number the people that I may know the number of the people. So again, a couple reasons that I want to unpack here for why David comes to this idea of, of numbering the people. His army is successful and large. He's just won a bunch of battles, but there's also been these two uprisings against him. And he wants to know, do I have the numbers on my side? It's kind of interesting because David has always relied on God. Now he's starting to rely on the army. Uh, he's also tired. I didn't read this passage, but it's in first, uh, 2 Samuel 21, uh, verse 15. It says there was war between the Philistines and Israel, and David went down together with his servants, and they fought against the Philistines. And the Bible says this, and David grew weary. This mighty general, this mighty conqueror was tired. Maybe he was tired and he wanted to see, how well have I done with my life? Maybe he fears that God is not enough to spare him another uprising. Maybe he fears that his army is not big enough. And, and remember, this is the man who wrote, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. In other words, if I have God, if I have the Lord as my shepherd, I don't need anything else. But for some reason, he slips into this insecurity. He slips into this idolatry of the army, and it's not going to go well for him because he's going to see God judge him for numbering the people. Anyway, we got to get there. Uh, let's go on to verse three. It says, Joab said to the king, may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are while the eyes of my Lord, the king shall still see uh, my eyes. Well, I'm sorry. While the eyes of my Lord, the king still see it. But why does my Lord, the king delight in this thing? Joab for all his faults is actually right here. He warns David. He says, David, listen, don't do this. You got to repent. And David is given a chance to repent. He, he's given a chance through Joab's mouth to say, no, don't do it. But he doesn't listen. Verse four, but the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. So David gets his way and the census happens. Verse five, they crossed the Jordan, began from Aor and just list there. They go all over the nation. Verse eight, excuse me down. Verse eight, so when they had gone throughout all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days. So David has been watching this happen for nine months. Nine months, he's had a chance to say, shoot, maybe I shouldn't do this. <laughs> what, it, what the scripture is describing here is he is, he is enshrined in sin and rebellion against the Lord and it's going to be worthy of judgment. Okay, so verse nine says this, and Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword and the men of Judah were 500,000. 800,000 men in uh, Israel and 500,000 in Judah. Now, this is important for us to understand because remember in the two uprisings against David, there was only one time when Judah went with the uprising and that was with Absalom. Typically Judah, David's tribe stayed with David. They stayed loyal. So David is, number, maybe this is another reason why he's numbering the people. He wants to know, do I have enough people, do I, do I have enough military men in Judah to fight off an attack or, or a rebellion in Israel? Again, this is David relying on his military prowess and not the Lord. And he is the Lord's anointed king. And the Lord's anointed king must trust the Lord explicitly. And David is failing here. Now, 
uh, it, it goes on here. As soon as the census is over, look what happens. Verse 10. And David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, oh Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. He, 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 just like you, just like me, David knows when he sinned. By the way, Christians know when they sin, for, for the most part. <laughs> um, Christians know when they sin. I, I think that sanctification uh, is the process by which you know more and more the corruption of your heart, the corruption of your flesh. Uh, when you're young in the faith, you, you see the, 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 the fruit of, if you will, of your sinfulness. When, as you grow in the faith, you'll see the root of your sinfulness. You say, oh, that's, that's because I never resolved that issue of trusting God with my money, or well, that's because I always had an issue with my father rejecting me, and so I've always looked to this for you know, acceptance or, or whatever. And, you've always, and so I think sanctification um, is evidenced in the reality that once you sin, you know you've sinned. And then you, you don't even put up with minor sins anymore without guilt, without, without turning to God and being struck in the heart. That's sanctification. Now, let me ask this question because it's an important question in regards to the context of this verse. Why was the census wrong? Why was the census wrong in and of itself? Because listen, Exodus chapter 30 talks about how a census was supposed to go down in God's nation. Exodus 30 verse 11 says, the Lord said to Moses, when you take a census of the people. So the census itself is not wrong. Right? When you take a census of the people, notice though what the law says, then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them. There, that there be no plague. Notice that too, because that's what's going to happen to David. That there be no plague among them when you number them. This was the law. Each one who is numbered in the census shall give this half shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary, half shekel as an offering to the Lord. Uh, verse. 14, everyone who is numbered in the census from 20 years old and upward shall give the Lord's offering. The rich shall not give more. The poor shall not give less than the half shekel. And when you give the Lord's offering to make atonement for your lives, you shall take the atonement money. Notice that. The atonement money from the people of Israel and shall give it for the service of the tent of meeting. What was the tent of meeting? The tent of meeting was the temple. So when you take a census of the people, you take a census of the people and you take an atonement offering from them, a, you call it an atonement tax, that they might subsidize or pay for the spiritual life of the nation. Case in point, the census of Israel, sensi or censuses, whatever the plural is for that word, of Israel were not for the glory of the king, they were for the edification of God's people and the glory of the Lord. And they were also to be used to remind God's people that they belong to him because that was, that was the, uh, the, the payment, the ransom payment, and then the atonement payment. Because you're mine, God says. And what is missing from David's census is the atonement tax for the able-bodied men, which gives us further clue that this census was typically just for David's own ego and not for the Lord's glory. By the way, that's why the plague breaks out against David. Now, uh, just, to, just for kicks, let's explore what one theologian, Walter Brueggemann, said about this. He said this, The census uh, thus serves to enhance the royal bureaucratic oppressive power of the king. The census is the long, ruthless arm of the military state intruding into tribal and village life. It is not a benign act counting on, uh, not a benign act, but an act of bureaucratic terrorism. Let me tell you what, what Brueggemann is saying. He's saying that Solomon will use the numbers that David acquired here to enslave the nation, knowing how many people he could draw from. And, and Solomon does excessively damage the reputation of the, of the kingship 
in Israel by enslaving far too many Israelites. In fact, it's so bad that when he dies and his son Rehoboam comes to the throne, they come to Rehoboam and they say, listen, it's been tough under Solomon for too long. Make our load lighter. And Rehoboam rejects the advice of the elders and he embraces the advice of the young. And then there's a civil war. Then there's a division between the northern and the southern kingdoms. Anyway, back to the point here is, Walter Brueggemann says that this census is evil from the sense of what David does establishes an opportunity for the government to encroach upon the lives of the Israelites far too much. And I think, I tend to, I tend to agree with Walter Brueggemann. I think that's a very important point. God does not want government encroaching upon the church, aka COVID-19 mandates and restrictions. God does not want that. What makes America the most exceptional country in the world is the separation of church and state. That has always been what has made us great because when you have the state involved in religion, you always have a dis- a, dis- uh, a discouraged populace because of a, uh, a diseased government and a compromised church. <laughs> Wherever you see human rights abuses, you tend to see the church and state go hand in hand, a.k.a. the Spanish Inquisition, uh, a.k.a. to some respects, uh, Nazi Germany and the, uh, the persecution upon the Huguenots in France in the 1600, 1600s. Wherever you see the church and state married, people suffer. This is why God ordained that there would be a separation between the temple worship and the royal authority, and never the two shall meet. There was a king named Uzziah later on in the story of Scripture's record who will go in and act as a priest, and he will be struck with leprosy, uh, thereby delineating that royal authority and the uh, religious authority of the nation must be separate. Anyway, David opens the door for that not to be the case, and I, have to tend, I tend to agree with Walter Brueggemann on that note. So David sins, he counts the people. That brings us to the judgment. God gives David, believe it or not, a choice regarding his punishment. This is an interesting thought. No one else in scripture got a choice. Like this is God saying, you know what? I'm going to judge you now. You got one of three choices. (laughs) Wouldn't you love that, by the way? (laughs) I don't know if I'd mind that. Like give me a choice. Maybe I wouldn't mind that because I wouldn't want to hear what those judgments might be. Anyway, uh, let's continue. The choice goes like this. Verse verse 11, and when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, go and say to David, thus says the Lord, three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, shall three years of famine come to you in your land or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. In other words, David, you got three choices and the three choices go like this. The three choices go like this. You got three years of famine. That's the longest. You got three months of being chased by your enemies. And that's being handed over to uh, physical human enemies. And then you got three days of pestilence from God. That's the shortest. Now, the question might be asked, why should the nation suffer for David's sin? But again, I take you back to the original context. Israel has just rebelled against God's chosen anointed king twice in a row. And they deserve judgment for this. This is God's view of his nation. He's going to correct them. The sin of rebellion and the sin of pride. By the way, both of those sins, the sin of rebellion in the people, the sin of pride in David's heart, both of those sins are the fruit of Lucifer, who rebelled from heaven because of his pride. Anyway, God was determined to judge both sins. So in one event, in one event, two birds with one stone, the nation will be weakened for another rebellion because a number of their military men will die because of the plague. And David's pride will be crushed because many of his military men will be wiped out. Anyway, let's look at David's choice, verse 14. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. And then look at this. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. 
So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from morning until the appointed time, and there died of the people of Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. 70,000 of the 1.3 million, gone. Uh, what is that? That's about 5% of the nation's military, gone in a moment, in three days. Now, David chooses, don't miss this, he chooses God's judgment. He doesn't want to be handed over to his enemies, and he doesn't want natural disaster, plague, I'm, I'm sorry, famine to hit him. And so God judges him for three days. Why does God choose, uh, why does David choose God's judgment? Well, he says there, he says it right there. He says, for his mercy is great. I don't want to fall into the hand of man. I want to fall into the hand of God. You know, interesting story about this text. And every time I read this text, it goes back to the story in my mind. When I was real young, when I was a teenager in my mom's house, in my parents' house, my mom and I were, we were having this argument. I had just been punished for something and I had done it again. And uh, I had been listening to the Bible and tape in my room for a few months by that time. And I came across the story where David chose God's judgment over man's judgment. Well, anyway, when I did this wrong thing again, my mother came to me. She said, you know, you better stop this because it's one thing if I punish you, but someday God will punish you for this. So you better shape up. <laughs> I'll never forget that I shot back. No, it won't, mom, because when David sinned against God, he asked for God's punishment because he said God's more merciful than people. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know why, but it just came to me and I just thought about it. And it's kind of a funny story of my history. And anyway, teenagers, it pays to know your Bible because then you can tell your parents what's up. Anyway, uh, let's move on in the text. Here's what it says in verse 16. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity that the angel and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, it is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arun of the Jebusite. Okay, remember the Jebusites owned Jerusalem beforehand, and the angel had been destroying the nation up until he gets to Jerusalem. Now, there is an important facet here of biblical history that you need to understand. Jerusalem has a special place in God's heart. He said, that's where my name will dwell. By the way, it's where Jesus will be crucified. And this is a picture of the Lord relenting because he sees the city in which sin will be once and for all atoned for in the person of his son, Jesus. This is incredibly important. And then the Bible mentions the threshing floor of Aruna, Arauna, the Jebusite. When Solomon builds the temple, and the verse is up there on the screen, uh, it says this, 2 Chronicles 3.1, Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to David, his father, at the place that David had appointed on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. By the way, this is the same person. Ornan and Arun are the same person. You say, why two names? Because many people in the Bible have two names. Sometimes it's Aramaic being translated to Hebrew and vice versa. Anyway, this place, okay, the threshing floor of Aruana or Ornan, the Jebusite, is an important geographical location in the nation of Israel. It will be where the temple is founded. It will be where Solomon establishes the foundation of God's house. So look what happens. David says, verse 17, when he saw the angel was striking the people, he said, behold, I have sinned. I have sinned and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. I, David says, need to take the punishment. Now, David needed to be punished, but remember, we've already talked about this. So did Israel, because Israel rebelled against David as the anointed king. But David says, I'll take all the punishment. Stop. And that leads us to the third portion of this passage, 
which I call the altar. All this tragedy is going to produce something wonderful for God's people and is going to teach us something about God's house. And it's no, no coincidence that this is the last episode of David's life recorded in 2 Samuel. David has to end the plague by offering a sacrifice to God and he has to purchase from Ornan the Jebusite his threshing floor where the angel stopped the plague. Now, no, now this is so cool. Just stay with me. It's incredible. Verse 18. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arun of the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word as the Lord commanded. Verse 20. And when Arun looked and uh, looked down and he saw the king and his servants coming toward him, and Arun went down and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Arun said, why is my lord the king come to his servant? David said, to bind the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord that the plague might be averted from the people. And Arun said to David, let my lord the king take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering and the threshing sledges and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Aruna gives to the king. And Aruna said to the king, may the Lord God, your God accept you. In other words, you don't have to buy this off me. You're the king. Take it. I give it to you. By the way, I'm also going to give you the oxen. I'm going to give you everything you need to offer this offering. And here's what it says. This is a powerful verse. Verse 24. Then the king said to Aruna, no. I will buy it from you for the for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. There must be a cost to my life for the glory of the Lord. So David brought the threshing floor, bought, sorry, bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver and David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land and the plague was averted from Israel. And again, I have that verse up there for a reason. Second Chronicles 3, 1, where it says that Solomon built the house of the Lord on, please don't miss this, Mount Moriah, where the Lord appeared to David here in 2 Samuel 24 uh, at the place of the threshing floor of Orn and the Jebusite. Three incredible stories are going to come together in this moment because this threshing floor is where the plague was stopped upon Israel for the sin of rebellion. Uh, this threshing floor will be the foundation of Solomon's glorious temple where there will be a altar built to atone for sin. It will also be the place where Jesus comes one day and offers his life as a sacrifice for sins. And it points back. That's the meaning of the words Mount Moriah. You're not going to believe this. This is so cool. Mount Moriah is mentioned. You know why? Because Mount Moriah is historically referred to as the place where Abraham offered his son Isaac in Genesis 22. We remember that story? Remember that story? Genesis chapter 22, God calls out to Abraham. He tests Abraham. He says, bring your son to the mountain that I'll show you and offer him as a burnt offering. And he goes to the mountain. And the Bible says that he uh, laid the wood on Isaac's back. Isaac carries the wood for the offering up the mountain, just like Jesus will carry the cross up the mountain of Golgotha. And then when Isaac looks around, he says, there's no lamb. He says, Father, the fire and the wood are here. Where's the lamb? What does Abraham say in verse 6 of that chapter? He says, God himself will provide a lamb for the burnt offering. And then we, we should know this story. It's a powerful story when, date, when Abraham's about to slay his son on Mount Moriah. The angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. Don't lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. Behold, behind him was a ram 
not a lamb, caught in a thicket by, by his horns, and Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. This is powerful stuff, ladies and gentlemen. This is powerful stuff. Because what happens here is a picture of what's going to happen centuries later in the Son of God. Abraham's son is spared because of the mercy of God. God's son will not be spared on this very same mountain. And we bring these three stories together, Abraham and Isaac, David and Ornan and Jebusite, and Solomon in the temple. Because on that place, on that place, Solomon lays the foundation of the temple, which will speak to the heart of God. And the heart of God is this, that ultimately sin will be atoned for at my cost. I will take the punishment for your sins. And I will build a house of mercy and grace for the nations. This is how cool scripture is. I, I, I hope you enjoy it as much as I do because I just love it when I see this stuff happen. Let me unpack it for you a little bit more. The foundation of God's house, okay? What is the foundation? It was built on the mount where a substitute was provided for by God, where the sword of judgment was raised and then stayed right? That's David's story here in 2 Samuel 24. And where a lamb would be offered in the place of a beloved son. And then finally, the place where a king would cry out, let your hand fall on me, spare the people. That's the foundation of God's house. The foundation of the church is that God spared us and did not spare his son. The foundation of God's house is a foundation of mercy and grace for sinners. You see, as much as we Christians can get angry or discouraged or let down by the trajectory of our world, it's nothing new. And God has been saving people out of the world for thousands of years through his house of mercy. And that is why, as Christians, we have to speak about truth, but we also have to be full of grace, full of grace for that person who sins differently than us and needs the Savior that we received, who, who needs to come to the house and know that we're not going to judge you. That's not our job. It's God's. But he's not even going to judge you. He's going to offer you grace through repentance and forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. <laughs> That's the foundation of God's house. That's why it's a privilege to serve it because we have the answer for the hurting heart. We have the answer for the rebellious son or daughter. We have the answer for every sinner. As it says in 2 Corinthians 5.18, all this is from God who reconciled, who I'm sorry, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Wow. That's a mouthful, but here's what it's saying. In God's house, we received mercy and Christ took the punishment. He's the true David who demanded the judgment upon himself so that his sons and daughters could go free. In God's house, we express gratitude for Jesus' final work. In God's house, there's hope for every sinner. And that's what the church is ultimately here for. Yeah, we're dispensers of truth, but we're agents of grace. And I pray that's true for you. 
I hope you enjoyed the episode. I enjoyed bringing it to you. If you would, do me a favor and support The Deep End uh, at thedeepend.tv slash give. Still there, thedeepend.tv slash give or the cash tag, cash tag thedeependtv or paypal.me slash thedeependtv. Make sure you support us. Make sure you go to my social media pages at Tim Hatchline all over the place. And make sure that you're subscribed up to Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, Twitch, whatever your preferred platform is. Interact with me. Interact with the channel. Would love to talk there. Check out the swag, the book, the Tumblr, the T-shirt. Did you notice that I'm wearing these deep end T-shirts? Do you see these deep end T-shirts? These are very comfortable, nice material, and they're available for sale on TimHatchLive.com right now. That, ladies and gentlemen, is episode 31 of season four and i am glad that you were here and i hope that i will see you again next week on the deep end thank you for watching this episode of the deep end on tim hatch live and let's be honest you really enjoyed it so click that subscribe button click that like button and also the notification bell so that you can always be aware of when we go live next the deep end is made possible by viewers like you so consider giving today i look forward to seeing you next time on the deep end